And we'll go to our study in 2 Corinthians tonight. And we're looking at um, this whole theme of staying in the fight. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes you feel like you're defeated and just want to keep on going on. But uh, this second letter to the Corinthians deals with really Paul's perspective on the church that was there. It's a follow-up to his first letter, obviously. Uh, some of the things he dealt with in the first letter had been corrected and other things hadn't. Uh, the big issue that kind of overshadows Second Corinthians is that by the time Paul writes this letters, uh, th- these letters, there were those that had come in, they were bringing a false gospel or adding to the gospel uh, law and not just grace, and in doing so had brought a counterfeit, had captured the minds and corrupted the minds of many of the Corinthians. And so Paul writes defending himself, defending why he came, how he came, and those things. And I think Second Corinthians is one of the, the more heartfelt letters of Paul because you get to see a glimpse of what was going on in his head. Uh, although, again, the Lord had it intended for us all to share in that, not just the Corinthians, and to look at that. Well, anyways, we're in chapter 11 finally. And title of this is Father Knows Best, and that's, uh, or A Father Knows Best, and that's um, uh, really from Warren Wiersbe's outline. And his outline of this chapter is uh, found in, in this way. We're going to look at point one tonight, but his jealousy over the church, that's Paul's jealousy, his generosity to the church, and then his anxiety for the church. So we'll look at those three areas over the next uh, few weeks. And uh, we'll pick it up here tonight, looking at this first one, uh, which is his jealousy over the church. And that's, we're going to read verses 1 to 6, and later on we'll get into verses 13 to 15 there in the last point. Let's begin in Second Corinthians chapter 11. The apostle writes, Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Let's pray again. Lord, we do come before you asking for your help tonight. And Lord, help us to open up your word, help us to pray over some of these prayer requests, Lord, that have been brought to our attention tonight. Help our minds to be stayed upon you. Drive those things out of our hearts and minds, Lord, that would would distract us even tonight from your glory and your wonder. And I pray, O Lord, that you might be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. This first point, we have uh, Paul's jealousy over the church. And he begins talking about that. He says, kind of entertain what he sort of says as a foolish thought. Well, even though it's not foolish, it was in a very serious thought and what he's dealing with. 
Uh, and you see some imagery that he uses in, in this section of scripture. The first one is a picture of a loving father, and he portrays himself as such. And I often think about that as um, a minister who, like if I was in Paul's place, how would I demonstrate to the, that church in particular, and really all the churches that Paul started and all that, how he loved them? And sometimes I say, well, that's not easily, you can write to people and say you love them, and he did. But I think beyond that, he showed his heart. He showed exactly what was going on for the deep love that was in him. And when he writes and he talks about the jealousy that he had over the, over the church, uh, a jealousy that was sort of a holy kind of jealousy, um, we, we kind of see that, and I'll get to that in a moment here. But true love is not envious, right? It doesn't uh, want what someone else has, but it is true love can be jealous, right? If you love somebody and that love should be a mutual kind of love, then there should be a, a jealousy about that kind of love when that love isn't reciprocated, right? And that's what Paul was talking about. They had given their affections to others, others that had come after Paul, others that had brought a false gospel and had brought uh, really the teachings of Satan. And he talks more about that later on. And we, we see that. And in this case, it's a picture of a loving father. Uh, and you could say a mother would have that same kind of feeling, obviously, for her children or his children. And there is this desire to see the children protected and not have harm come to them. And so there is that idea that that's going on. And Paul uses this picture of uh, a person, like in this case, a daughter who is betrothed to be married. And he says this, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul's imagery here is of a father who has promised his child, his daughter, as a chaste virgin, as a pure uh, daughter, to a husband and there has been an engagement process uh, arranged and of course in that culture arranged marriages were very common right and we don't do that as much now although there is still a fair amount of arranging that goes on in families and approvals and those kind of things and much of the world there is still that arranging of marriages and really it has this idea that he has he has had a daughter um, or a picture here of that and in this case the church and he has taught her well and had them, you know, with good instruction and hopefully uh, the righteous character that goes with that. And now they weren't following that teaching. They weren't doing those things. And it had provoked a godly jealousy in his heart for that. The picture here is of marriage. And we do see that in Paul's writings uh, where he uses the Im imagery of the church as uh, married or betrothed in this case to Jesus Christ um, Ephesians 5 he further teaches on that we've gone to this passage numerous times uh, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body therefore just as the church is subject to Christ so let wives be to their own husbands and everything he says there's a picture in marriage 
of the subjection to Christ as a husband and a wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Now that sanctifying and cleansing, I think Paul alludes to as well when he talks about presenting her as a chaste virgin, right? The aspect of the ministry of Christ and the minister of Christ is to make sure that the bride, that one that is betrothed, um, is presenting herself appropriately. And that's part of the teaching ministry that goes on. It's part of that instruction that Paul talks about. That he, the Lord, might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so the picture of the chaste virgin. And we see that as taught by Paul. Uh, Romans 7 verse 4, he says that too. Therefore, my brethren, all right, this is the church uh, at Rome, Christians at Rome, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. He's referring to the Lord. To him who, has, who was raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus, that we should bear fruit to God the aspect of our ministry and you see how it, there it's pictured as a betrothal right marriage which is yet future and the, from to the one who's been raised from the dead that's clear who right and then that you should bear fruit also in marriage that's usually the product of marriage is that children come in this case spiritual fruit that's really what he's he's talking about and that was his desire for the church at rome I do believe in the future that marriage is consummated and it is in heaven in Revelation 19, 7, when John writes, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So a picture here of a loving father uh, who is not in this chapter here, but in, in Corinthians, that has betrothed his daughter or arranged that and wants her presented appropriately uh, as, as a bride someday. And we see that with a holy jealousy. Um, verse 3, back there in Second Corinthians 11 talks about the peril of an unfaithful fiancé, all right? An unfaithful one. And that's what was going on in Corinth, or had anyways, and still was in the, in the sense that they had betrothed themselves not to Christ, but rather to the Judaizers and the law and the things that were really corrupting the gospel for them. He says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And the, the picture here of an unfaithful fiancé, uh, the daughter was not being faithful and she'd been corrupted in doctrine in this case, and it had led to living that was wrong too because paul deals with a lot of, of their christian living in the first chapter but the phrase here so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in christ that word simplicity <clears throat> as it's translated uh it's this word haplotes and it means a singleness of devotion a sincerity 
sometimes we think of simplicity as just not complicated, right? But in this case, it's, it's the idea of a singleness of devotion. Um, I kind of thought about that in the contrast to that because the opposite of simplicity is complexity, right? And sometimes uh, you go on Facebook, for example, and I, I think I mentioned that it wasn't long ago um, that I saw someone had changed their, their status, their relationship status, and it was someone I knew that was married and knew them when they were first married, even before they were married, and a real loving couple. And then some 20 years on, now the status is it's complicated and they're not together anymore. And I, and I thought that is exactly what Paul is saying here, that it's easy to take the simplicity or the single devotion that you might have had when you first were saved or what drew you to Christ, and then all of a sudden it becomes very complicated. And we start giving our affections and our devotion to other things. It's no longer singularity or simplicity, but complicated. And sadly, many Christians end up in their life somewhere along the line in their relationship with the Lord, and they've changed their status to it's complicated. And it shouldn't be that way. Repentance, go back, singularity of heart. And of course, um, Paul talks about that in... Um, in Revelation chapter 2, right, with the church at Ephesus, he says, I have something against you. You have left your first love. Again, a picture of the church and a relationship with Christ that had something to do with love. And, and that honeymoon kind of phase was over and they had left their first love. The Lord uses that illustration elsewhere in Scripture also for, for Israel, specifically Judah, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And here the illustration is used of the Jewish people in Judah in particular that had strayed from him and now they were committing idolatry and judgment was at the door. Uh, Jeremiah is called to bring them back into that singularity, right? That devotion that they had when the land wasn't sown and the land wasn't very complicated. It was pretty simple. They followed the Lord. And again, I see that in the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, where he talks about that as well. Um, there's a peril of unfaithfulness. Be careful about that. Make sure your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ is singular. All right? Keep it that way. Well, there's a person that's behind the peril. A person. And yes, he's a person. And that is Satan himself. Uh, and I do believe the devil is a person, all right? Not that he, he is an angel, but he has a personality. He's a person, personhood, and a very real enemy. And what you see here that complicates the uh, relationship of a believer with the Savior is the fingerprints really behind it are, are Satan, is Satan, the workings of Satan. When Paul writes here, he says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived eve now who was the serpent we know satan right and that's genesis chapter 3 by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in christ and so he says right up front he says this 
uh, singularity that has disappeared and now it's complicated has been complicated by Satan and he's deceived by his craftiness and that's always a, a reminder to us that Satan is crafty and he can take that which is bright and shiny and make our affections turn to that instead of what we should be devoted to and I, I think years ago I remember hearing someone talk about that that when it comes to the world and the world system and Satan and his workings, he always has something that's more flashy and more appealing than what often is found on the surface anyways of the, the message of the gospel. When you come to the message of the gospel, it's not something always flashy, is it? It's a, it's a hard message for some, for many. It's because we have to repent of ourselves and our sin and those things and have to give up what we are as sinners to him. And yet, as we do that, we find out that it's far more lasting and eternal. Whereas the world and the flashiness of Satan is just a temporary thing and it leaves you wanting, right? Sin is, is pleasurable for a season. Seasons come to an end. The relationship with Christ does not. The person who's behind the peril. He goes on to say, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, that's usually the heart of the message that comes from Satan is another Jesus. And I might say that it's another Jesus, as Paul writes. Um, it's too often that Satan comes and he counterfeits. All right? He'll come along and say, Well, here's Jesus. But he's another Jesus. He's not the real Jesus. All right? And that's, that's extremely important to understand. If for, for many Christians, and this is the context here, these are Christians, these are people who've trusted Christ, and they've been, their relationship has become very complicated and no longer simple in faith. And, and the reason behind it is because there's been teaching that has presented another Jesus. I think of those who are the counterfeits, that come, the counterfeiters, I should say, that come and knock on your door sometimes, or you run into them somewhere, and they will believe in another Jesus. But he's very similar on the surface as the Jesus you believe in or you have read about in Scripture. But entirely different. Entirely different. I remember years ago running into a couple missionaries, Mormon missionaries, that were in a farmer's market in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I happened to have a track on me that was uh, directed towards Mormons. And, and they're nice people, and I have no qualms about them sometimes being good neighbors to you and things like that. That's not the issue. But they were there in the farmer's market passing out um, their literature and trying to really convert people or bring them over into their, their studies. And I, I approached one of the young men who's about my age, and I said, here's something for you. And I gave it to him. And it talks about, it said on the title of it, Mormonism has another Jesus. And there was a sort of a, a, a different kind of picture of a Jesus on the, on the picture of it, you know, or, or something that portrayed that in the, on the track cover. And the man got really offended. He said, would real Christians give this stuff out? And I said, real Christians would present the real Christ. And that's what I left it at. And he took it. He took the thing. And we just, you know, when I continued on my way through the farmer's market. But see, sometimes that, we need to stop right there and address it at the heart of it. And so often, the thing that actually is the, the counterfeit in the, in the message is it's all about Jesus. 
you have, whether it be the Mormons or the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses that come, and they, you may agree on all kinds of things. I mean, how many of you would like more peace in the world? That's a great thing, right? They will talk about that. They will talk about uh, all kinds of Christian issues that the Bible talks about, relationships with marriage and family and those things. And we all want stronger families and better marriages. And then, but when you come to the person of Jesus, he's different. He's not God the Son, but the first created being of God. Big difference. And that is not doctrinally sound. It does not go with what Scripture teaches. He's another Jesus in in the case of uh, uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses that come. Or the Mormons, which in Mormon teaching, Jesus is the brother or half-brother of Lucifer. He, he's an angelic being like every powerful, called the Son of God. They'll agree to that, They'll, all that stuff, the title. But he's the brother of Lucifer. Ask, uh, ask them that someday. When you, do you believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer? Half-brother of Lucifer, specifically. And if they're honest, they'll say yes. Show me where that says that in the Bible. Doesn't. So that's outside the scripture. That comes from, well, the teachings of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll call it, as I'm here tonight, the same kind of people were about their business in Paul's day. And they were not going and evangelizing the lost. They were going and really trying to de-evangelize. I guess so that's a word. I made that one up. Um, the church. And it's a dangerous thing. And you know, the way to address a counterfeit is to know the real thing. There's a lot of different counterfeits out there. And you can't be an export, expert on all of them. I have enough knowledge of, of Mormonism and the Watchtower Society to know that it's counterfeit. But I, and I can cite you some specific things. But the best thing is to know the real deal. So when whatever comes your way, it might not be anything like that. You can say, this isn't right. Because the scripture is, is clear. Anyways, Paul talks about the person who's behind that. And I can just say this, there may be very sincere people in those movements. I have read uh, testimonies of people that have come out of uh, the LDS church and others that came out of it, and they were entirely sincere in what they held to and believed, and their eyes were opened. I remember hearing of, uh, reading of one woman who, um, she was with the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and she would go door to door every Saturday, and she would do that. And um, she came across a, a house one day of a born-again Christian. And they're taught that born-again Christians are demonically possessed. So you know that when you're dealing with them, they already have a little suspect about you. But the woman that was there didn't talk to her, didn't let her in her house. But she just said this. She says, read your Bible and not the watchtower. And that little phrase stuck with the woman. And she went home. And she looked at the materials she had received in the last year that came from the Watchtower Society, and she looked at her Bible over here. And she said, there's something wrong with this, this picture. So she began to talk, read the Bible. And she realized this stuff didn't amount to a hill of beans that was over here. And, and I say that because that's you know the, being confronted with truth. Paul was confronting them with the truth. And beware of that. 
uh, the person behind the peril. Paul has a lot to say about Satan in his writings, in particular to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we covered this some time ago now, he writes in verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one, that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And then he says, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Do you know that Satan has the ability to burden the consciences of, of believers and to cause division? in the work and Paul writes about that he has the ability to blind minds right whose minds the God of this age that Satan has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them that's to the unbelievers he blinds the mind you wonder why you talk to some people and they seem so oblivious to truth and to sometimes spiritual truth And you know, the reason is because Satan is at work. And he wants that person as blind as he can be. And that's quite something. Praise God, the Holy Spirit can lift those blinders and work in spite of that. He's more powerful, isn't he? Um, Here's another one. He can beguile the minds. In verse 3, he says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve. Right? He can beguile those that know the truth. Did Adam and Eve know the truth? Yes, they did. They knew it in a time when their minds weren't even, there wasn't any sin in the world. They they didn't have the cloud of sin and temptations that we do here right now. And they would have known directly from God the truth. And, you know, they still were beguiled. He's quite an enemy. And, you know, he can even affect us physically. And I do believe there are some physical things that happen to us that probably come from Satan. Now, there are physical things that happen to us just living in a sinful body and sometimes living in a sinful world. You are buffeted, but there, is, there are times where Satan will do that. Second Corinthians twelve seven, Paul says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Something in Paul's flesh, an infirmity of some sort, was directly from Satan. I've often wondered, what was that? Was it maybe the time that Satan influenced those, those crowds to come at Paul and beat him up? Or whip him? Or damage some part of his body that always caused pain from there on out? Or his poor eyesight that may have been the result of just beatings? Um, what was it? I, I don't know. Someday maybe we'll ask. I I don't know, but I do know this, that there is the messenger of Satan that sometimes comes and buffets buffets us physically. And then he says, um, you know, talking about the mind being deceived. And the big thing is this, that when you look at Satan, when he first appears in Scripture, it's Genesis chapter 3. And the first time he interacts with people, he does this. First of all, he questions God's word. And then... He denies God's word, and then he substitutes his own lie. And and you look at that. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
Now, he questions God's word. little doubt planted right there. Then look what it says in verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, now he, he denies God's word. It starts with a question, but then a denial. And then lastly, he substitutes his own lie. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We've always wanted to be like God. All of us, I'm sure. You know, people would say, you know, from the sinful side of us, we would like to be like him. We're not, though. And you can't be, because there's only one God. Satan, though, deceived Eve and Adam, and they violated God's word. And it's interesting. It's exactly what cults will do when they come and they try to capture your mind, even those that are in the Bible and know the truth, and they will come along and they will put a little doubt in your head. Oh, you guys, you don't really read the right, you know, part of that. Let me show you something. And then they change it. If you look at the New World Translation of the Bible, which is the Watchtower Society's version of it, they change all kinds of stuff. And they do so in violation of uh, a very clear linguistics and, I mean, language, you know, tools that are available to you today and all that. Back in the 1800s and into the, you know, even modern age, it was pretty hard for the average person, unless they wanted to go invest in a lot of books, to go look up things in Greek resources or Hebrew, Hebrew resources, which today are readily available to most people. And you could quickly point out some of these changes that should never have been done. But you have to do that. See, you have to change things if you're going to have the doctrine behind it make sense. So, anyways... Satan, by the way, has a counterfeit gospel. Beware of that. A counterfeit gospel. Uh, Paul talks about that to the Galatian church. And very similar issue going on in Galatia, in the Galatian churches that was happening at Corinth. There were those that came along, and they were Judaizers, is what they were, and they would say, okay, that's the gospel. Christ died for your sins. Uh, but we want to say that it's more than just grace that saves you it's also grace and works or law and you have to keep the law actually you have to be converted to judaism before you can become a christian and they brought that teaching in and paul writes a letter to the galatians dealing with some of that legalism he says in verse 6 of chapter 1 i marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of christ to a different gospel which is not another But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That is pretty strong, isn't it? As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For... Do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. 
For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus had revealed to Paul directly the gospel message. And you say, well, what is the gospel message? And I, I believe that there's one gospel. And 1 Corinthians, Paul elaborates on that in verse fifteen, in chapter 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. So it is the basis for living. It is the basis for our stand in faith and righteousness. It's our basis for salvation. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures were those? What Specifically, what scriptures, I'm saying, like what part of the Bible were those scriptures Paul's talking about? Old Testament. The gospel was, was the message from the beginning that God was going to send a substitute. And that's seen in the lamb. That's seen in the in the preaching that was done by the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah, right? And you go to Isaiah 53, it's the message of the gospel, same gospel. And then he goes on to say this, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been compiled yet and written. He's writing it, okay, and others. Uh, So you have the gospel. And so Paul's saying this, that if you're believing another gospel that's outside the scriptures, you're believing a false gospel. It's, it's that simple. And then lastly, you have the person behind the peril and then the preachers of a false gospel. Okay, And that's verses 4 to 6 and 13 to 15. Let's just read those. We'll make some comments on them here in the last minutes. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He says, beware. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now that apparently was what was being told to the people there by the Judaizers. Oh, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, after all, he's not a very eloquent speaker. Speaker. Uh, matter of fact, Paul says, you know, he, he was accused of being... Um, his speech being contemptible and his presence was was weak right his bodily presence was weak he was not much of an apostle in other words and paul says no you're mistaken for even though i am untrained in speech yet i am not in knowledge and i would beg to argue that in the bible when you come to the writings again god used he breathed out his word using the 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 men that are your name's often attached to these books, right? And he used their knowledge as well. And he used their personalities to come through in the, in the writings and all of that. And I think there's no better uh, preacher of the gospel as it's presented anyways in a logical, more, you know, logical format than Paul. Um, and, and obviously God intended it to be that way. And it's true. He was very much trained in knowledge, and he knew that. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. And Paul said, every aspect of my life was open for you. That's what manifested means. And it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just being able to say the right words. It's also a life that backs it. And we know that Paul did have such a life. When he comes to Corinth and is there 18 months living among them, 
in uh, Acts chapter 18, it says immediately when he went to Corinth that he joined there Priscilla and Aquila because they, and they worked together as tent makers. All right? I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it says in the opening verses of Acts 18. So Paul was working there among the Corinthians. And then he's laboring in the synagogue for a while. Then he's laboring in the house church for a while. And he's doing that 18 months. And then he writes a letter and then a follow-up letter and defends himself. And that he says, we were manifest among you. There wasn't anything hidden. Some were arguing that Paul wasn't uh, an apostle as such because he was maybe laboring with his own hands. And I just say this, that sometimes... That's the way we manifest ourselves to the world. I'm listening to John Dowdy's uh, letter tonight, you know, and he asked for prayer about, I guess he's working on the ambulance there, and I, I understand that. <laughs> but, you know, that's an option or opportunity for the gospel to be presented in a community in a tangible way. And you live your life in front of people, right? And that could be in a million different different ways in this world. But that stood out to me tonight listening to that, thinking Paul was a tent maker, and he manifested himself that way, sweating by his brow during the day and then, you know, battling into the evening hours with the, these in, in, the, in the Bible studies that it was conducting and all those kind of things that were happening. And actually, we know he preached late into the night in some places, right? All right. Um, verses 13 and 15 or 2.15 there, it says, uh, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. The key phrase there is transforming themselves. Uh, you're not transform, you cannot transform yourself into an apostle or into a Christian. Only he can transform us, right? And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So, key words there, transforming themselves or himself, and um, allow him to transform us, right? Father, thank you for your word, and help us to stay in the fight, help us to show forth and manifest your righteousness, And help us, Lord, to beware of counterfeit Christs, counterfeit messages that would complicate the faith. And help us to be of simplicity of heart and devotion. In Jesus' name, amen.